Thank you so much, Lori. So I'm going to start with a handful of poems um, from So Late, So Soon, and then I'm going to move on to poems from my forthcoming book, um, Beauty Refracted. And between the two books, my, my father died, and so I, I'm going to be reading some poems that reference him and his death. So I thought I would start with a very short poem in So Late, So Soon, um, it's, it's one of the earliest poems in the book, and it's a synopsis of, of family lore, and you'll see what I mean. It's really short. Patrilineage. The uncle's lopped off head, Cossacks in the sister's bed, and the boy who hid, then fled, took a name from the river and crossed the sea, found Ida, had you who had me. Um, let's see. And um, the next poem, now I'm pleased that there's two artists from New Mexico here, is called Bosque del Apache, no explanation needed. It's a bird sanctuary in central New Mexico, and it comes from going there, Bosque del Apache. Winter, scratchy branches flame upward, stiff as ratted hair. Crows crown the leafless trees, black buds that bloom in unison, only to fly. At dawn, the marsh is crowded as a skating rink. Ducks land in squadrons, swim in pairs. Geese honk to be let by. Like them, we're stalled in traffic, caught in a cavalcade circling the one-way 15-mile tour loop, binoculars in every lap. We scout to see what we're missing and end by missing what we're seeing. The sky's too busy and too vast. Lavender-orange masses of clouds lit from below stagily surge and disperse while from the farthest east daylight's dark stars flap their wings, assume their shifting constellations, and stream over us, crossing the sky like corps de ballet after corps de ballet, undulant velvet ribbons trailing. Each bird a basted stitch puckering the sky's pale blue satin smock. Each flock, an intricate design in thread, the seamstress forgot to lick and double knot. And so it goes. A V of cranes unravels, rivaling the geese for noise. Well, there are a couple people here who've probably heard me read more than once, and they've probably heard this um, next poem. Make sure that's the one. Yes. Because it's it, of... of Poems, um, sort of the earlier poems. It's one of, I don't know, it's one of my favorite to read. I'm not sure why. It's called The Butterfly. And it has an epigraph um, from, it's been a long time since, from the East Indian book of classical dance, which is called the Natya Shastra. And that goes, the eye follows the hand, the mind follows the eye, the heart follows the mind. And I like that. So, um, The Butterfly. Oh, and I'm in the East Coast, so I don't have to really explain that Kill is a river, right? In New Mexico, I have to, in the West. All right. With no appreciable weight, a butterfly alit, and rode my finger an hour or longer. Holding my hand ahead, I let the butterfly lead. We walked down to the kill, its wings an upright sail. I was almost afraid to breathe, 
but my feet knew the path, its slipknot roots and slingshot branches. I sat down on a rock. I couldn't believe my luck. The world right then seemed kind, a butterfly on my hand, its bronze wings spread flat, pulsing to raise its body heat. Like a fluttering eyelash, it tickled the web of flesh between forefinger and thumb. My life can never be the same, I thought, studying the leopard spots of its eyes, its veins like pleats, its scalloped scales, its legs, six knobby little twigs, the thorax's fuzzy patina, the two slender antennae bulb-tipped like matchsticks, and the pointed black circumflex markings on each scored wing, accents from the mother tongue. With its proboscis, it sipped salt from my hand and tapped out a secret code, the secret names of God, invisible to man, imprinted on my skin. If I could have become a fern, a stone, a stalk of corn, Instead, my left hand twitched, and the butterfly detached itself, all in a breath, my article of faith, momentarily tame as if out of a dream, now circling the rock, not coming back. So this next poem um, comes out of going to um, an orphanage in China to meet and bring home our daughter and it's called Birthstone. Each morning I eat an orange from the bag full given us by the head of the orphanage, and still the bag is full. Afternoons on the tour bus, you sit in my lap and sleep or cling to my garnet necklace, biting it with all four teeth. Out the bus's window, the bicyclists of Guangzhou balance boxed refrigerators and crates of live hens above their back spokes. Look, Ma, no hands, another new parent jokes as he refocuses his lens to catch a trio of girls turning perfect cartwheels before they begin to squeal and mug for the camera. A cluster of girls that age and one albino boy pose for their pictures that day at the orphanage. Welcome, American families, the chalkboard read. These are our best babies, your father overheard someone say in Mandarin as you were carried in and I shot out of my seat to take you from your auntie and hold you close. You were wearing layers on layers of clothes topped by bulging overalls and pink appliqued white cotton shoes, too small for your toes, but soft and delicate. Yours. And you, mine. Under close-cropped hair, your big eyes took me in with a glint of recognition. Then, after an exchange of currency and gifts, everyone stood to watch the new mothers change their babies' diapers. The adolescent girls and one albino boy just outside the door, looking sweet enough to forgive the inexplicable that none of us had come to take them home. Tug, tug all you like, my darling. Tug till you're back asleep, tug in your dreams, start tugging again the minute you wake. 
No matter how hard you tug, your birthstone necklace will not break. She wouldn't let me read that for a long time. <laughs> so uh, she actually, even though she's not here, she said, you can read about me now, Mom. I'm older. <laughs> OK. Little does she know. Um, OK. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so I'm going to read two more poems from this book. And this is the title poem, um, So Late, So Soon, which really was inspired by um, the land in Maine when I was teaching at Stone Coast. And there was a drive from, Baron's going to have to help me, wherever we were staying to Stone, the Casco Bay. Um, anyway, So Late, So Soon. Don't assume the car ahead is headed where you want to go. Don't mindlessly follow it. Past the farm stand, graveyard, kennel, low to the ground, stone-carved clover, your mark. Take a sharp left. Where light scrolls a sycamore incising its bark and leaves, pull over. Let yourself be bedazzled until the light scoots. You'll see a dirt road with no hedge. Turn right and keep going east toward the spit wherein you think your destination lies. Go farther than you imagined until the road straightens, narrows. If you find yourself in a mounting reverie regarding the eloquent slope of his shoulder, the sweetly sustained ardor of his inquiry, the way he heaps bliss upon you, then spoons you to sleep, again, pull over. Compose yourself by scribbling a note to be emailed later. And if, by now, tired of admiring Daylilies buttercups, you just want to be there, check for speed traps before accelerating. Soon, on your right, you'll come to cow pasture, rolling field, silo, barns, stacked hay, and then a sudden shadow, the woods. Always the woods before your arrival a clearing, the unanticipated bay. And then, let's see. So this, this last poem from the book, it was one of the, the last poems that I wrote in this book. Um, and I'm kind of reading it as a bridge between the two books. Um, it, and it comes from a dream I had about about two weeks before um, my father was diagnosed with the illness that he died from, and it's called Premonition. Each book short a poem, the poem I couldn't yet write. My father exits. Thinking he is going outside, I open the door to follow, find him naked on the other side, facing me unshielded, vulnerable to the rise in my voice. The poem I can't yet write saves for itself a blank page for when it can't be avoided, a promissory note come due. For now, the account still running, the line of credit open, the debt not yet settled. Let's see. So that's from so late so soon. Um, and the rest of the poems that I'm going to read are from um, Beauty Refracted. And as Lori said, that's coming out in over a year, but it's on its way. Um, and I'm going to skip around in it. Um, 
excuse me. Let's see. So this first poem is from another dream that I had. Uh, it's not all going to be about my father's death, so don't worry. But this was a dream I had um, shortly before his death, and it's called Dream Loop Number One. There are a lot of poems, uh, or half a dozen poems, that I title loops in um, the book, and most of them are from walks that I took in um, Powaki, where we lived for many years, outside of Santa Fe. And then in, there's these two dream loops, and this is dream loop number one. To suffer a loss of limb, my right arm, my writing arm, the foot I flex as I think. To be crushed like a clove under Krishna's juggernaut, pressed to a verjuice of tears. Even on waking whole, Night's grief unstaunchable, my father barefoot in snow. This is called Alert. Night sweats, sweat between my breasts, the sheets slick, my mind a mattress left out and pecked open, stripped of its stuffing by magpies battening their nest high in the courtyard's cottonwood. 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4. Don't miss the bus, don't miss the bus, my father Talmudically warns from beyond his freshly tamped grave as an owl's twin search beams exhume the dark. The nightly raid begins with a series of hoots. The sheets are soaked. The heart I gave you, the one currently confined in me, filibrates nonstop like a tin spoon banged between iron bars, self-celebration morphing into panicked protest in shadow of the, hour's of the owl's launch. Um, this next poem is called Maya de Soap. Dysopsia, and does, it, does anyone know what that is? Those are eye floaters, which I'm sure a lot of us have. Um, and so that's the, t the official word for them. And this poem is in, I think it's in six shortish sections. And again, the uh, Powaki River figures into it. It's kind of an elegy of sorts. <clears throat> Myodysopsia. What would he make of us now, he who despised getting his inexplicably pianist fine hands soiled? The perspective of that he doesn't exist anymore. On the curved scrim of my retina, vitreous floaters bob and sway in silhouette like shadow puppets. I want to swat them off the darkened stage, but they persist, gnat-like, just out of reach. When his gold-rimmed watch vanished off my wrist two years to the day, I panicked as if the soul had been encoded on it, illiquid but transferable. Later, when it reappeared, I locked it in a drawer. All synopsis or isolated moment, memory distills time into meaning, but pickles what it enshrines. Where a horse now leans against bent fent posts and mangled wire, one night a pickup crashed and rolled. The driver died, the truck got towed. 
For months we encountered his scattered effects, house keys clipped to a mud-caked carabiner, taped wired pliers, splintered CDs, rabbit's foot still soft as the field's cerulean velvet wild iris that that grow in clusters to wither in a day or two. I think of him, yet a stranger, when I use the pliers. Who is it lays out the deliberate arrangement of sheep hooves and hides we find some Easter's at the arroyo's mouth? And who would position a cushionless couch stained and slashed aslant the river as if to lounge and watch it like TV on exposed and rusted coils? Or leave to its stink an open-eyed, jagly cut deer head in the wheel-rutted off-road? What transactions do men conduct through roll-down windows, engines running? Bullet casings, paper targets tacked to the Columbia crumbling mesa, amber empties propped on sandstone ledges shattered in the grit. When I see their mud trucks, I leash the dog, turn back. In the spring, backhoes haul dirt along the strill dot dry bed and berms are tamped and beveled to train the seasonal water along its newly wedged runnels. But when the separate currents swell beyond their banks to join in one large braided flow, uprooted saplings get swept downstream along with rope string mop heads. Ever since the dump fees rose, more diapers, condoms, tampex, fridges, washing machines. Trade routes, rivers, the routes of the dead. Gravestones, the paving stones. Chiseled names and dates worn off, effaced by the brunt of wheels. For a while I watched the flecks in my eyes if sighting on the horizon spinner dolphins frolicking. Then I tried to ignore them. My father, too, dives unpredictably in and out of focus, sometimes hidden, sometimes sharpened by an impervious divide. That dark pond in the grass, a cottonwood shadow. It's another river poem, Loop, Powaki. A restless sleeper, the Pewaukee shifts in its gravel bed and sighs, shrinks into itself, secretes mud curls. I try to keep everything I think in my head, but each former thought a new one displaces. By the time I'm home, I forget them all. Owl guano drips down the arroyo's side. On the mesa, small precipices, outjuttings. Horsetail, tamarisk, grow where they are blown, root in river sand. Also the cow hoof, the plexi camper shell. Let's see. Um, This is uh, called a leaf's gravity. A man hired by the man who dredged the pond documented 26 kinds of birds at the southern bend of the Pewaukee River early one April morning. Like the autistic girl who glided up to you in a taut pool when your daughter was small and peered at you unseen, reminding you against your will 
or perhaps it was against your better judgment of a blind fish. As you mull over ways to incorporate the subcontractor's list into a poem, you stare blankly, first at the page, then out the window. All month you've been watching flurries of leaves catch in the sunlight as they flutter down. Weighing the gravity of a leaf against a leaf's gravity, you don't notice the drift of your mind until, as in a newscast recap, the rabbit is already writhing, tossed from the wheels of the car ahead. As before, you're glad you aren't the driver, but angry, too, because you'd seen the rabbit. If you'd been in front, you could have swerved and saved it. Whether impotent anger or relief came first, you're not sure, and which emotion is truer, stronger, you also can't say. Even now, you wish you'd stop to bury it the way you buried your daughter's Siamese kitten mauled by the dogs next door. Small calamities, you know, compared to the world's, some of which you register before you glide away. Well, I guess that poem was kind of about the process of writing. And this poem is kind of about the process of writing, too. It never says, so I'm saying, because it's hard to follow, the process by which a pearl is formed. And it's called, As Far As I Can Tell. A lidless idleness designed to mesmerize, out of which hesitancy and reluctance give way to calibrations, minute but not insignificant, day in, day out, rocked by the tidal bed the shell is attached to, is attached to, complacent in its mantle of unconscious soft tissue, it grows radially as if from a sound wave central ping or like a breath-fired ball of molten glass. The irritant of particularities, the seed that starts the exacting earnest venture, the salt inside consequent iridescence. Um... Well, Laurie mentioned that uh, I taught a semester at Hollands, and this poem um, comes out of, of that particular teaching because, I don't know, there's something about spending a semester with those students where I just learned so much lingo, if nothing else, you know, that kind of passed me by. But, you know, that's, I, I really um, enjoyed that semester and those students. And it's called Dew Point. From one, I learn what robo-tripping is. From another, the names of clouds. Diamond dust, sun dog, fall streak halo, cloud bow, fog bow, crepuscular ray. Despite his anchor-pierced clavicle, the languorous boy sprawled across a poem's quilt needs no explication. And I've already Googled quetiapine to make sense of rhymed nipple crust. But what I'm forced to ask outright is a tramp stamp. <laughs> There's stifled laughter until with a self-conscious candor I knew once in myself, an arch girl rises from the conference table, pirouettes on an ug, and crouches to expose above tattered low-rise jeans and spanning her iliac crest a tatted set of lilac fairy wings as innocent as she. Young love.
Always short a card, nostalgia lays out its dog-eared deck in a horseshoe spread, chooses from the apex an iconic image, her head in his lap, his hand ruffling her hair, the two of them dreamy midday as if sleep were the greater part of consciousness. Cigarettes balanced on the rim of a wrought iron table dangle ash. For years they live in the aura of inevitability they radiate in love with a tautological logic. It was, it had to be. Hindsight, with its stacked deck, knows what happens next, and so no doubt do you. But they, they themselves, poor lambkins, are blindsided. I'm going to read two more poems. I hope I have time. One of them is long. I mean, I'm saying two, but one of them is like 11 poems. <laughs> so, um, and that's the title poem to this collection. And then the other one is just, you know, regular size. So, <laughs> um, so I'm going to uh, give a little introduction to Beauty Refracted. Um, when my daughter was 11, or when she was in the sixth grade, I began to notice that it's common for girls in early adolescence to cling to childhood, to girlhood, and resist the next stage of their development. I mean, for some girls, it's a hard, hard passage. Um, it reminded me of the fairy tale of Sleeping Beauty, who, you know, who pricks her finger on a spindle and falls asleep for 100 years um, until she's woken by a kiss. And the resistance of girls to growing into womanhood began to seem to me the essence and the meaning of that tale. Just fall asleep till it's over. <laughs> um, so this poem, um, it, it's grounded in the fairy tale as well as being a meditation on what I perceived at close range and, and my experience as a mother. Um, the girl in the poem is called Beauty, and then another name is alluded to um, of a flowering lotus. And the poem is also, it's punctuated by a kind of parallel world, a world of play. So the characters of stuffed animals have prominent roles. And, um, and then I just want to add that my view of fairy tales and of the role of play and the unconscious in the development of the female psyche was profoundly influenced by Maria von Franz, the Jungian um, analyst, specifically her, her, I think, great book, the feminine in fairy tales. And the poem, it's in 11 sections, that's why I call it 11 poems, and um, it starts with an epigraph from the feminine in fairy tales, and that is, every dark thing one falls into can be called an initiation. Like a storybook girl emerged from the split pit of a peach, or one miraculously drawn up from the murky depths of a wishing well, her origins are unknown, except to those who placed her where she would be found, and thus lost the ability to track her. If you only see someone before your eyes have learned to focus, have you really seen that person? She knows her mother inside out, but only from the inside out. The face she sees is a blank. It is her face. The faces that aren't blank aren't hers. To be named beauty, 
specifically beauty in the flowering form of a winter lotus. To be transplanted, shifted from the crib of one continent to the hip of another, the pitch and heave of infancy, asleep like an oceanic voyage you wake from, far from where you started, the memory of what and who were left behind, opaque as stirred mud, as pond muck that feeds the sacred flowers' submerged roots. To find your name a neologism coined expressly for you, to be seen from infancy as embodying an imaginary seasonal variety of an aquatic known to revive and germinate after stasis suspended over a thousand years. Your given name, a navigational star by which you learn to track cosmic seas. For nights on end, on a cable of finger-knit pink yarn looped around a ceiling beam, Donk, the compact donkey, hangs suspended, her bed his safety net. All the bunny world is assembled to watch, even the other performers watch. The troops called Cirque de Lune. Cornelia, the pink unicorn, stars, romantic and lithe as the trapeze artist in Old Maid. Her straddle climb up the silks and free fall drop are perfect. Donk can't help but heap scorn on everyone, slighting and taunting even his friends, Moo Cow, Troubadour Buddha, and Dear Loopy, the tender lion who symbols an endlessly looping lemniscate, as his name implies. In the bunny world, we all live on the same block, friends own neighboring houses, a street map to the stars, two restaurants, a general store, and a gym can be found gridded out in a spiral-bound notebook. No amount of money can buy a cloud, so in the bunny world, there is no money, no commerce, no dating either at first, though Briar Rose, the frolicking mare, pines for Phoebus, who lost an eye in battle, and chivalrous lion that he is, pretends not to notice. Whose idea was it to introduce the troupe to spin the bottle? Their personalities a mashup of psyches, free associative patter, rift on pratfall, put down peacemaking, each night refines. Planetary perturbations, hormonal insurrections. When beauty's fingers pricked on Maya's spinning wheel, she's felled, locked in the keep of childhood, the household held to a standstill. Only love mitigates the spell. Pollen velvets the sills. Board games crowd the kitchen table. The last bit of green sparkle chipped off her nails. She sorts through cards, seeking the peppermint pass of Queen Frostine, old ally, to airlift her up. No confirmed observations have been made of the Oort cloud where she perambulates light years from the sun. Demagnetized, she's lost her bearings. 
impassable barrier, though unlocked, the door on which she bangs, her wail a hard-charging squad of sirens, a comet's tail trawling the far cosmos for a sign. The trails evaporated. The face she yearns for, a lost piece of the puzzle that is herself, has fallen through the flooring, down the crack of a synaptic cleft. At first, Beauty thought Briar Rose's mooning over da Vinci, a Morgan Beauty had begun riding once a week at the barn, was just a ploy to get Phoebus's attention back, if she'd ever even had it. Her voice, already high, pitched up as she pled to be allowed in the barn for a reunion played and perfected on the rug, the tale of how, as colts, they had romped in a field swooningly punctuated. With no eligible stallions to assail, Briar Rose moped in cast-off, elbow-length, white satin dress-up gloves that sagged at her knees, all the while eyeing Shawnee, the stocky rocking horse, and now and again pawing the air in front of Polly, the gigantic but benign polar bear, both courtiers off-limits to all but beauty, whose fierce reign kept everyone prancing in place, the troop's social order as prescribed as dressage. When beauty, slip-knotted to a flimsy rope, begins her descent, rappelling down, I don't think about the large array of girls who disappear from reality's surface, trapped in the unconscious of the opening the meadow made for Corey, or Alice swilled down a rabbit hole's throat. When into the full-length curtain's smothering swaddle, she flings herself like an amped-up moth rushing to collide with a fatal beam of light, and when with every thrash and twirl the curtain's corset tightens its stays, I don't, who on earth would, have the presence of mind, the detachment, the faith, to take heart in how poor Snow White survived the lace-up bodice her stepmother devised to squeeze her lung sponge dry, survived the flesh-harrowing comb, the poisonous bite. What can we, the petrified, do, except stand guard impassively until the paroxysm breaks, then coax her out like a kitten, Flex her claws free of the netting. Keep the curtains tied. A hundred days, a hundred years, asleep in the same bed, all three of us at first crammed into our allotted slots. Beauty, given how much she flails, put on one side. Mine, as the mother flank, the one chosen. The father can't ever be center. He is male and must, within his given role, maintain an ideal ratio between closeness and distance. Beside her, I begin to supplicate, soothe, cajole, fuss, and fume, careful not to tease as I lead her back to her own bed, her nest of plump pillows. Our rituals evolve over time, like Scheherazade's, our days and nights of storytelling as we play, chatter, fight, and sleep with the animals who crowd the bed's ready-made stage set. 
Beauty had always said she wouldn't date until her 150th birthday, but one night whittled that down to 15, a revision tantamount to taking an axe to the thicket of brambles separating her from her yet-to-be-awakened self. Briar Rose started a school, became a scold, tried to enforce a code of conduct no one could hold to. Half the troop ducked out, cut class. Cornelia threw a hissy fit, egged on donk to graffiti the cafeteria with fat flowers, put up her hooved dukes. The sisters fought to a standoff. Loopy called for a truss, meaning a truce, but no one trusted that it would last past Mook House ballad at Beauty's bedtime. The entire troop piled up to hear his tropes, heroic tales of the bad times, when Phoebus shed blood defending them, lost an eye, collective sigh, nervous laugh, then one by one they crept to kiss beauty before she kicks them to the floor. She wanted to refuse time's shape-shifting imperatives, so night after night wore the same panda-print purple night shift until its neck and armholes began to pinch, the hem rapidly inching up like bamboo, though of course it was she, not it, that grew in secret weed-like sleep sprints we ignored until keeping herself intact no longer meant staying the same. When she abruptly skidded to a screeching halt, her heels making wheelies in the dirt, how unexpected was it? A part of her apparently knew that other parts couldn't catch up unless she stopped outright or willy-nilly went back to fetch them. When beauty wakes, the generation of squirrels whose every name she lovingly handpicked as they scampered across her path has given way, replaced by more anonymous offspring. Corolla-like, her girlish hips have flared. The last of her milk teeth has been pushed out. Only she is allowed to brush her long, thick hair. Slowly, yet all at once, is how beauty woke. If in most ways the world remained the same, the Earth still spinning atilt its daily axis as it orbits the sun and the moon orbits it, our deadly fuels, our feuds and constant perils, beauty's inner compass has been reset. Who can say how? She woke not to a kiss but to herself, and once that sealed-off sleep has slipped away, it dreamlike stays forgotten. So this is the last poem, and it's called Kakapa Bay, which is in Hawaii. As if at the near edge of an expanse of blue chemise, froth scallops the lava collarbone of a rock point. Past the slate roofline of the house below us, the air is all fan snap, palms batting off wind. Across the water, behind a light haze, Haleakala visible atop Maui. There, we're situated amid a horizon one part of my mind rests on, while another part scans itself for landmines sensitive enough to detonate 
even under the gingerly tread of these bucolics. Mulling over each word, strip-searching sighs, I follow the leads I let drop, keep assurances I make, bribes offered in exchange for any promising morsel. Crab eyes, shrimp eyes, string of pearls, water boils away, tea steeps, I work past dark, husband, daughter, fast asleep. Thank you.